Skin and gold, wood and blood. This is a strange mixture of elements that brought together heaven and earth. Skin and gold, wood and blood. An odd combination of ingredients that, in great mystery, reunited humanity with God. Skin and gold and wood and blood, the divine and human meeting place, the place where the Holy One touched the unholy. Skin and gold, wood and blood. These elemental things, they take us into the depths of Christmas and they take us back into the book of Exodus. And I admit, one's first thought is not usually the book of Exodus when the lights of Christmas go up and hang on our eaves and our gutters of our homes. One's first thought is not usually Exodus when December brings colder weather, shorter days, longer nights, and all the speakers in the city are overtaken by Christmas carols. But for the Apostle John, Christmas doesn't just bring visions of of sugar plums dancing in his head, but rather visions of the Exodus. Tastes of liberation, of tyrants defeated, of, of evil drowned, of blueprints of a holy place. Images of skin and gold and wood and blood. Visions of luminous glory clouds. Of the tabernacle where God would take up residence. The tabernacle. It is the place that was written in raw materials that said God has moved. God has moved into the neighborhood. See, one of the things that we need to get into our bloodstream as apprentices of Jesus, one of the ways our imaginations need to be reshaped is to see the Scriptures as John saw the Scriptures and to see Jesus as John saw Jesus, which is why we have been working through the book of John for a year, meditating through this book. And with John, we need to see that the big story of the Bible is one of God creating for himself a people that he might dwell with in a deep and eternal love for their flourishing and for his glory. And, and though we all, Israel and all humanity and us, though we have all been unfaithful, he is faithful, yet he abides. Christmas is the glorious story of this good God coming to abide with us in the person of, of Jesus, to reunite heaven and earth. After all, Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The big story of the Bible is about a God who dwells with his people. The big story of the Bible is that love shows up. Love shows up. Christmas could be summed up with these simple words, love shows up. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to zoom out a bit. We're going to go macro, put that macro lens on in order to get our bearings. So go back with me. In the beginning, God created a paradise. He created a garden of delight in which he would dwell with humanity. But sin crept in. And betrayal 
broke relationship. Paradise shattered, intimacy fractured, delight deformed, a cosmic rupture, a cosmic divorce. Yet God came walking. Yet He came walking back to unfaithful humanity. Humanity who's hiding in, in our shame and our blame gaming. And he comes walking, he comes walking back into the crime scene in order to begin working this long but fully redemptive process of reunion. And from this pattern in Genesis, in the first few chapters of Genesis, this pattern will then unfold in variations throughout all the Scripture. God creating and preparing a place, God creating and preparing a people, putting those people in that place and then dwelling with those people for their good and for his glory. This pattern is seen time and time again throughout all of Scripture. Time and time again, love shows up. Story after story, love shows up as God works his plan of reunion that he might dwell with, that he might be with, that he might abide with his people. And Christmas, the Advent season, is all about how love shows up. And it's what John wants to show us in these verses as he tells his version of the Christmas story from a, a cosmic angle. So, let's look along the glowing beam of the light of these scriptures up to the shining source. Let's look at who God is. And we're going to begin here with John 1, verse 14. Uh, bear with me. We're going to go back and forth. Old Testament, New Testament. We're going to go back and forth a few different times, and I hope you'll see why. Start with John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The way John writes this, it's brilliant. The words he chooses, they work to re bring the reader back into the time of Exodus, or, or rather, it's better to say, they work to bring the time and the truth of Exodus into the life and the time of the reader who is reading them. And it's amazing how a few words can load a whole world into your imagination, isn't it? I say, a long time ago in a galaxy, far, far away, and at light speed, right? Your thoughts are full of what? Yeah, filled with lightsabers and droids and Jedis and stormtroopers and their horrendous aim and images of Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher in the sands of Tatooine. It's just there. I say, you're a wizard, Harry. And instantly, thoughts of Hogwarts and Quidditch, Gryffindor and Slytherin appear like magic in your synapses. And I say, Aslan. And instantly, through the wardrobe you go, visions of Narnia come bounding and roaring to life. So it is with John. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And his readers, those who knew the scriptures, those who knew Hebrew, would be teleported back to Sinai, or rather Sinai, and the time of Moses and the presence of God would come to them. Because here's what's going on. When he says dwelt, 
The word there in Greek is this funny-sounding word, skenao, which is a variation of this, this word to mean tabernacle or tent. In other words, this one, this Jesus, tabernacled among us. And this is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. See, if you rewind the story about 1,500 years before Jesus, you get to the Exodus. Israel was in slavery. God commissions Moses to go and to bring his people out to be their liberator. And out they go, out through the split Red Sea. And they go into the wilderness and they cross the sands of Sinai and there they are at the foot of the mountain. And Moses goes up that mountain and God meets with Moses. He gives him the Ten Commandments and then he gives them him this blueprint, this set of schemas, so to speak, to embed something into the real life of these people on a daily basis that will bring a heavenly truth down to their earthly existence. He gives them the blueprints for the tabernacle, and they're loaded with meaning and symbolism, and it's literally the overlap of heaven and earth. So Exodus 29, I want to go back to Exodus 29, verses 42 through 46, and read a passage. Here's what it says. I will meet with you, that's God speaking, I will meet with you to speak to you there, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory, and I will sanctify the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that, here's the reason, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord of their God. So after this, God then takes up residence. He will dwell in this tent in the middle of all the people. Skin and gold, wood and blood. Now this image that you're seeing here is a real life scale or full size model of the tabernacle. This is in southern Israel, and you can visit it. This is what it would have looked like. And this tent is travel-ready. It is made to move. It is a divine mobile home for a people on the go to the promised land. It's made of animal skin. It's made of wooden posts of furniture and other items overlaid with gold, solid gold objects and it will be the place where there are the blood of sacrifices this is a place where the faithful god encounters a faithless humanity and does something about it brings them in is with them and cleanses and purifies them this is the place of sacrifice it's the place where heaven and earth overlap it is the nexus the convergence of the natural and the supernatural. Now, this tent of meeting, this place where God's presence is found, well, each of the parts of this tabernacle, they are just loaded with meaning, and each one of them points towards a particular truth. So this bronze altar, that that square there in the, the courtyard there, that reminds the people that 
They are to approach this God in worship through sacrifice because sin has to be dealt with. Evil and darkness has to be pushed back. There needs to be a cleansing. And that bronze laver there, that kind of looks like a bird bath in the middle, that is a fount for cleansing because the priests had to wash. God's people were a clean people, stains removed from what they've done because of the work of this God. And inside there was the, the Ark of the Covenant, this golden ark that reminded the people of God's presence, a visible symbol of this God. And inside that were the ten words, the, the tablets of, of the Ten Commandments were placed there to remind the people of this relationship, of this covenant of faithfulness that God would oversee. And then there was a veil inside there that separated the different rooms, the veil of the tabernacle. And that reminded the people that to enter in, there had to be some kind of mediation. It was restricted and only the priests could enter in. You couldn't just come to God on your own terms. He set the terms, but he also created access. Now this tent is heaven on earth, so to speak. It is a recreation of Eden, because you go inside that thing, and it is loaded with images of, of cherubim or angels. It's loaded with trees and with fruit and with garden scenes. It is a microcosm of Eden or heaven on earth. Now, John doesn't just use the word tabernacle. He, he's going to pair that with the word glory. So let's go deeper. So back to John chapter 1, verse 14. Here we go. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what John is now doing is he's connecting the word tabernacle and the word glory. And here's why. Because of Exodus 40. So back 1,500 years to Exodus 40, picking up at verse 33 to 38. So Moses finished the work. That's the creation of the tabernacle. He took those blueprints that God had given him, and he was faithful to bring it to life. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory, the kavod of the Lord, filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. The cloud of the Lord of the tabernacle, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now what's happening here is God's presence invades this space in a powerful way. And then when that presence lifts up and moves, then the people know it's time to move. God is going to lead them through the wilderness step by step. When that presence stays, they are to stay because God has a plan on leading them through. So when it's up and out, they go up and out. When the presence stays, they stay. Well, the tabernacle is built, as you can see here, and then God shows up. He shows up in glory. This word, kavod, this is a word that means weightiness and, and worth. Right? Think of a 
heavy gold coin versus a chintzy plastic coin. One is thick and it has substance and, and density to it. And there's a, there's a preciousness and worth to it that isn't in the other thing. And it's this visible manifestation of the worth and the weight of God. So you could say glory is the shining presence of the invisible God. This heavenly radiance here on earth. And here you can see an image of of the tabernacle that's portrayed by an artist. You can see all the tents around it. That's the people of Israel. And at the very center of the people of Israel was this tent and the presence of God. God has moved into the neighborhood. Skin and gold, wood and blood. The glory of the presence of the Lord would be with the people. And he wouldn't just be with the people. He would minister to the people and cleanse them and change them. And he would lead them. In his love, he would lead them onward towards the promised land. Like God came to the unfaithful Adam and Eve in the garden, God comes to the unfaithful Israelites to be with them. But John's not done. He's not done with these Exodus hyperlinks that show us the brilliance of who Jesus is and what Christmas is all about. So let's go a layer deeper. Back to John 1, verse 14. You guys doing okay? Flipping back and forth, we all right? Okay, John 1, verse 14, grace and truth. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory His manifest presence, the radiance and splendor of heaven here on earth. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John, he's not just using nice religious-y words here. These things are pregnant with meaning. They are loaded. They are themselves these radiant hyperlinks back to Exodus. So, again, rewind with me, 1,500 years before Jesus, back to the what? The Exodus, right? Hebrews, the Jewish people, they have left Egypt, they have followed Moses out of slavery, they have gone through the split Red Sea, which should have been their doom, but it becomes their salvation and the doom of their enemies, and they walk across the sands of the wilderness, and they walk to the base of Mount Sinai, a mountain that's shrouded and glowing, that's swaddled in luminescent clouds because heaven is touching earth. God has come down, and so Moses goes up on the top of this mountain, and there God gives Moses these Ten Commandments how to interact, how to live in accordance with the truth of who God is. And, and he gives him these blueprints for this tabernacle. And there, God also reveals himself in a profound way. And this is literally and figuratively a summit moment in the story of the history of redemption. God is going to reveal to Moses who he is, what he is like. It's, it's a moment of divine self Disclosure. This is not just biography. This is autobiography. This is, this is something to listen to. And so here is one of the most often repeated passages of Scripture throughout the story. And so now we're going to go to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, verse 5 through 9. Here's what it says. 
The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, with Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That means he showed who he, he was. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. He says, go with us, be with us, dwell with us. We don't want to... Do this thing alone. <laughs> and then, then he just shows um, how much of a realist he is. He's like, uh, and it's a stiff neck, people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. We're a bunch of knuckleheads. We've fallen on our face already. You have just redeemed and restored us and shown yourself in spectacular ways. And still we refuse you. Go with us. Be with us. And so in short, God shows up. And God shows Moses a glimpse of his glory. And he describes himself to Moses. So this is, this is God according to God. God is merciful. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's gentle. He's caring. And God is gracious. He helps, he rescues, he restores, he redeems, he gives us the things that we don't deserve. He's slow to anger. He's supernaturally patient. He's not explosive. He doesn't have an itchy trigger finger. He's not quick to take offense. He's basically the opposite of everything you see on social media. God is full of steadfast love loyal love that will stay. And God is full of faithfulness. He is true and faithful. This word faithful, it means like genuine, coherent, consistent throughout. Who he is is who he is. He's not going to change. He makes a promise. He will keep it. He's faithful. And he's forgiving. He's forgiving, yet he is just. This God brings justice. He is not okay with the darkness and with the garbage that we spew out all over on each other. He will bring justice. Now, these, these two words here in the center, chesed and emet, steadfast love and faithfulness, these are key, these are important. The story, from this point on, is going to pick up on these words and quote these words and refer to these words. And these words are going to become a shorthand to describe God, full of steadfast love and faithfulness, over and over and over again. God is called steadfast and faithful. And here is the cool link. Here's what John's doing. If you convert these words from their Hebrew in the Old Testament, which is the Exodus bit, to the Greek parallel in the New Testament, do you know what you have? Chesed and emet become grace and truth. There, you can put them side by side. You can see what he's doing. So he's linking the tabernacle and glory and Emmet and Chesed with 
grace and truth, and he's bringing all this together. Like, just pause. Like, just revel in the glory and the beauty and the brilliance of scriptures. So often, people in our world would be like, ah, the Bible is just, you know, a bunch of myth and all this stuff, and it's like, yeah, but have you, have you read this thing? Like, have you actually done your due diligence and dug into it and see the beauty and the truth and the goodness woven together, like the brilliance of scriptures and John is, is weaving this whole thing together and in here is something that I would call a literary apologetic because when all these pieces add up, you have something here more brilliant than the world's most brilliant author could ever put together in his lifetime. And this is more, more coherent than what one person could put together in the flesh and it's done over centuries by a number of authors Yet the deeper you go, the more consistent and coherent and beautiful it is. It's incredible. Our scriptures, that point to a God who is true and integral. Okay, I need to get back on. So John says this, Jesus, he is the tabernacle. He is the dwelling place of God. He is the place where God and humanity meet, and he is the flesh and blood expression of who God is. He is steadfast love and faithfulness incarnate. He is grace and truth in the flesh incarnate. And for our, our team that's going to Mexico, right? Help me out here. Chili con carne. Chili with what? Meat. Carniceria. Right? What is that? I mean, I, I'm sorry for how I'm pronouncing things, but come on. Like, this is grace and truth in the meat, in the flesh. Love shows up. Love shows up. The long plan, the numerous Old Testament promises of God dwelling with his people, it all takes on flesh and bone and blood in Jesus. Love shows up. And so John continues on with this incredible truth. Look at verses 16 through 18. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He, this Jesus, has made the Father known. Now what does all this mean? Well, it means that God has graciously saved his people from slavery through Moses, and he graciously gave them the law. The law is a grace because he's teaching them to live in accordance with who he is. Imagine these people lived in slavery for how long? Four days. 400 years! 400 years. All they knew were the rhythms of slavery. Slavery was in their muscle memory. Their imaginations were, were shaped by a tyrant. Their imaginations were shaped by slavery. So God brings them out and says, I'm going to reform you and teach you how to live well in this world according to my word. So he gives them the law that they might live in accordance with who he is. Yet that wasn't enough. That grace of the law was not enough. The people kept turning back to slavery. They kept turning back 
to darkness. They kept turning back to their old ways, returning to the idolatries and adulteries that were within their very systems. And so another grace had to come to take the people further up and further into the truth of who they were and who God is. So Jesus came to dwell with his people, not just out there, but in here within our rib cages to change our hearts that we might live in accordance with reality. So God revealed himself through the law that he gave Moses, yes, and it was a grace. But in Jesus, he came to dwell with us, grace upon grace. And think of it like this. When God gave the law to Moses, it's kind of like he sent an autographed picture and a little bit of something like a, a newsletter to say, here's how things should go. Here's a snapshot of me. And here's how you should live in accordance with that. But when Jesus came, he came in flesh and blood and he knocked on the door and he came in and he sat down with us for dinner and then he moved in and then he started rearranging the house in which we lived and has changed us from the inside out and is present present with us. And this passage is so cool because it says that he's made the Father known. He's exegeted the Father. We get the word exegesis. We do scripture exegesis. We explain the scripture. Jesus exegetes the Father. Jesus explains the Father to a people who don't know or understand him. And then one other thing that I need to point out, which I, I just got so excited last week, I had to jump into this verse regarding the side. And I see where it says, who is at the Father's side? This Jesus, before all creation, was at the Father's side. It doesn't mean side. It means bosom. It means chest. It means heart. This, this Son of God was always upon the Father's chest, a deep intimacy at the heart of reality. That Jesus that has come to John here is the one who comes to us to draw us into the very heart of God that we would abide with him. The ministry of presence. Friends, you know this, love doesn't stay afar. Love gets close. Proximity and intimacy, they go together. Proximity and intimacy need one another. And so love shows up, love enters in, love gets down into the mess and the muck in the middle of it all. But Christmas, Christmas wasn't the end, right? Christmas needs Easter, Christmas needs Easter. Jesus was born into a manger wrapped in linen in order to dwell with us. And then Jesus went to the cross and was bound in linen grave clothes that he might truly dwell within us. So remember. Remember skin and gold, wood and blood, this was the strange mixture of elements that brought heaven and earth together in the tabernacle. Skin and gold, wood and blood, an odd combination of ingredients that in this great mystery somehow reunited humanity with God in the wilderness. Skin and gold, wood and blood, the divine and human meeting place, the place where the holy touches the unholy and glory dwells. That tabernacle was just a shadow of the true meeting place. Jesus is the skin and the gold. See, Jesus is the skin tent, the tabernacle of the flesh of humanity. 
in which resides the the gold of God, the, the divinity and precious pure presence of God. Jesus is fully man and fully God, and Jesus is the sacrifice, the lamb to hang upon the wood, the one who offers the blood that cleanses us in unfaithful people. The tabernacle was a shadow of the love that would show up and the love that still shows up. And look, when when love shows up, it's costly. When love shows up, it comes with a cross. And when love shows up, it's misunderstood. It's counterintuitive. Jesus was rejected, was pushed away, was an outcast. When love shows up, it's patient, it's slow, it's, it's steady. And that's how Christ was, unhurried, patient, slow, steady, doing the long work of ministry. And when love shows up, it wins through vulnerability. And this is the cross of our King. Christmas is the gift of love showing up. It's the gift of love showing up. That's the good news. But here's where I want to lean in a little bit of a different direction. Love shows up. God doesn't leave us alone in a wintry world. He doesn't leave us alone to figure it out. That's good news. But it's also the Great Commission. Love shows up. We are to show up. He calls us as his image bearers in whom his spirit dwells to show up as a Christmas people who have his spirit within us, we are to show up. Christmas teaches us that love is not an abstraction. It's not some mere notion or just floaty idea. It takes on flesh and it shows up in real world experiences where there's darkness. We are to show up as lights. Where there's injustice, we are to show up as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven where there is loneliness we are to show up in care and in company where there is depression and anxiety and grief and there are ragged edges to your wounds love shows up in the power of real ministering presence and tomorrow and today are a hard day for for me and my wife Tomorrow is the birthday of our firstborn son, and I don't mean Silas, I mean Haven, whose birthday and death day were were the same many years ago. And when we were swallowed up in that grief, when a thick darkness became like a surreal nightmare in a moment, and everything changed, um... There was a powerful and healing love that came through the ministry of presence to us. There was slants of light. Oh man, there were slants of light in that darkness. And those slants of light were, were people who loved Jesus, who sat with us. Most of the time not knowing what in the world to say. Because what do you say? But their presence was a ministering power to us, and the Spirit used it. Those long walks where we just talked and, or cried or, I don't know, didn't know what to do, but just, we were with someone, 
He moved through those things. And you know what? I wonder. I wonder as people in whom God dwells, a people in whom love has showed up, how are you to show up this Christmas? How are you to show up and love this Christmas? How are you to show others the truth of this divine love that showed up in Christmas? Will love take on flesh in you? Will it take on flesh in you? Will you show up to that difficult neighbor? You know, the one that you uh, have consistently avoided? You have a special gift, a ministry of avoidance rather than a ministry of presence with that difficult neighbor who you just can't stand talking to? I wonder if love will show up and in the midst of those conversations, you'll see a, a heart that's broken and that needs someone. I wonder, will love show up in that cold and silent shell of a marriage? And if love will show up and you'll take a first step into that gap in between to, to create some more proximity that God might create some more intimacy. And I wonder, will, will love show up in that fractured friendship? Fractured and torn by the strains of, of the last couple of years of, of COVID and all the weird politiz- politicalization of, of everything and all the, the polarization. Will love show up? Will you lean into that relationship and say, I'm not okay with staying in this, this, this toxic distance. I want to re-engage. And will love show up to your kids Will you pursue them? Because 20, 30, 40 years from now, the likelihood is is not that they're going to look back and be like, man, I just loved all those gifts I got. They're going to look back and go, the presence of my mom, the presence of my dad changed everything in my life. Advent is adamant about this. Advent teaches us that love shows up. And friends, when it does, it is costly. And I guarantee you, it will be misunderstood, and it will be often rejected, and it will be slower than we want, and it will be less flashy and less popular than we want. It will be patient. It will be kind. It will overcome evil. It will bear fruit. It will change the world. And so my parting shot to you this morning is simply this. God doesn't just say, I love you and remain at some cosmic distance. He shows up in his love the flesh and blood of his presence. So may we be a people who do likewise. How will you show up in love this Christmas? Father, you are good. And I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love for us. And, and Father, as we come to this table right now, maybe some are feeling guilt that they haven't showed up to their neighbors, to their spouse, to their kids. Lord, would hope arise because they know that you have showed up. And that means light can invade darkness. That means love can change everything. So Father, we come now to this table just to say thank you for your son. We love you. Thank you for your your holy word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.